Ken and Hazel Woodruff are here today. They're back there. Would you guys raise your hands back there? I know you love this. Go ahead. Just come on. Raise your hand back there. Ken and Hazel. Give them a hand. They're like celebrities here. We, they're on television. Did you see them on television? You see that? I was watching a football game I'm not going to talk about today, last night on ABC, ESPN. And um, there they were. I'm like, I know these people. So if you want their autograph after the service, and uh, you, can, you can talk with them. Hey, yesterday uh, afternoon, I was visiting with Nola Mills. She's in uh, Henry Ford downtown, and she's really seriously ill. She had emergency surgery, and uh, she's just not in good shape at all. I told her that I would have you pray for her, and she can't talk, but she was vigorously saying, I want you to pray for my family. I want you to pray for other people. And I said, you can't tell me what to do. So we're going to pray for, for Nola Mills, and, and, and there are so many, you know, in our church uh, congregation have various degrees of trials. I hope that what I have to say in my message today from Matthew 21 is a help to you and to those who might listen there on the podcast later. How many of you here, your name is Daniel? Raise your hand up real high, leave it up. If your name is Daniel, we got a Daniel here. Where else? Yeah, yeah there are Daniels up there. This is a powerful name. Listen careful. Yes, Daniel, I see you there. Here, here, this is a special message for you, Daniels, and the rest of you can listen in. If my name was Daniel, I would be really proud of that. Five centuries, 500 years before Christ, one of the most fascinating characters in the Bible lived, and his name was Daniel. Of course, Daniel was a Jew, and he'd been taken captive into Babylon, and he was a faithful and a devout and a courageous man, a young man, when he was taken captive. He had a remarkable spirit. And everybody who knew Daniel knew that he had a remarkable spirit in him. He served the Lord in high leadership in the land of Babylon for decades. Rulers would rise and fall, but Daniel would still be in leadership in Babylon. The Scriptures give no record of any flaw in Daniel's character. Though we know there's a flaw in every human character, there's no biblical record of any flaw in Daniel's character. He was a heroic and remarkable prophet. Now Daniel was given a number of visions from the Lord. And these would be visions of things that would happen in the future. This is just fascinating stuff if you've never studied it before. One, one of the visions that Daniel was given was given to him with shocking, shocking detail. Now Daniel was a student of the Bible, the Bible as he had it at the time. He poured over the Scriptures. He studied the writings of the prophets. And he was prayerfully studying the Bible. Understand, while he's in captivity and his people are in captivity, they're, they're slaves in Babylon for years and years and years and years. Daniel continued to be faithful to his God as a slave in Babylon for years. And he studies the Bible and he prays and he fasts and he mourns and he grieves over the sin of his people. He's a remarkable guy. And at one particular time, he began to pray as he studied the Bible, he studied the prophecies of Jeremiah, and he recognized by studying his Bible that the Babylonian captivity was about to come to an end because the time of the Babylonian captivity was given in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Now most of us at that point would have said, well, praise the Lord, looking forward to that happening, but Daniel wasn't that kind of a guy. Daniel, rather than just waiting for God to fulfill his promise, begins to fervently pray that God will fulfill his promise. Track with me on this because it is powerfully relevant to you right now. He lives in a time when God's people are under judgment. He lives in a nation that is under the judgment of God. Things are not the way he wishes they were. 
People that are ruling are not the people He wishes were ruling. God is not honored in the country in which He lives. He feels the weight of that on His chest. So what does He do? He studies the Bible, and He fasts, and He prays, and He confesses sin, and He confesses the sin of His people, and He pours His heart out to God in prayer. And that's found in Daniel chapter 9, and you'll want to read that. That would be great afternoon reading this afternoon. If you were to look in Daniel chapter 9 and just hear the prayer of Daniel, it's an extended prayer of Daniel, where Daniel just pouring out his, out his heart to God. It's a great thing to study the prayer of Daniel, to think, do I ever pray like this man prayed? Do I ever pray with a kind of fervent prayer that this man prayed? Do I ever fast and pray? Do I, do I weep and pray? Do I confess sin and pray? Do I confess the sin of my nation and pray? Because I, I'm for one, am, I believe in conversational prayer. I believe that when you see a pretty bird in flight, you should immediately say, Oh Lord, thank you for that pretty bird in flight. When you have a nice piece of pumpkin pie and some piping hot black coffee, you should say to the Lord, thank you for that. When you're taking a walk in the forest and you smell the scent of the pine, there should be this spontaneous prayer that goes up. But there should be times when the heart of a Christian is so burdened, a heart of a Christian is so broken, that he or she gets on their face before God, maybe goes without food and confesses, sin and praise. This is the kind of praying that should happen in our church right now. This is the kind of praying that should happen in our nation right now. There's no political rabbit you can pull out of the hat. No candidate that you can elect that can do what only God can do. Are you with me on this? Only God can send revival to our nation. Only God can fix what's broken in our nation. Daniel knew that so he prayed. And Daniel fasted and prayed. And God answered his prayer in a remarkable way. He sent an angel with a message. The angel was no, was not just any angel. This angel that came in answer to Daniel's prayer was the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel, Daniel could tell that he was flying swiftly to come and answer his prayer. So the angel Gabriel flies swiftly to answer Daniel's prayer. And, and he says to Daniel something like this. He says, Daniel, when you first started praying, I was sent in answer to your prayer. That's what he said. When you first started praying, I was sent an answer to your prayer. And then he said to him something that I would, would it be wonderful if God would ever say this about you, whether you are actually a Daniel or not, because you are greatly beloved of God. When I read that, I thought, oh, would God ever say about me, Ken, you, I answered your prayer and I sent a message to you and I gave you understanding in a dark and difficult time because I love you so much, because you are beloved to me. Would it be something to nestle so deeply into the heart of God that you knew that you were loved of God and that He answered your prayers? And the answer that He gave to Daniel was way beyond what Daniel was asking. Because what Daniel asked for was, God, do what you said you were going to do and end the Babylonian captivity that would last no more than 70 years. So God sends the angel Gabriel, and the angel Gabriel says, gives him not just the answer to his prayer and clarity and understanding about that, but do you realize the angel Gabriel gives Daniel the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 to 27, which is one of the most remarkable prophecies in the whole Bible, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel which would come literally to fulfillment to show the whole scope of Israel's history, including the coming of the Messiah, the cutting off of the Messiah, and the eternal kingdom of God. God gives Daniel this entire prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27. Do you realize what I just told you? 
Hundreds of years before Jesus came, God sent the angel Gabriel to Daniel to give him specific details. Now, this is really interesting because many years ago, a man from Scotland, his name was Sir Robert Anderson, who was an officer in Scotland Yard. Now, he was a distinguished attorney and he was an officer in the British government. He worked on a number of high-profile cases for the government intelligence, and he was a devout believer, and he was a student of the Bible. He wrote a number of books. One of the books that Sir Robert Anderson wrote was about Bible prophecy, specifically about the coming of Messiah. And the book is called, it's a beautiful title, The Coming Prince. Still in print today, you can get it cheap on the Internet, by the way. Sir Robert Anderson's amazing book, The Coming Prince, Now, in this, he talks about how the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy would happen. According to the the calculations of Sir Robert Anderson, the first part of this prophecy, the 69 weeks of years, or 483 years, is fulfilled on the day that Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He does the calculations and he says, it happened on this exact day. That's quite a claim, quite an interesting claim. And more recently, a scholar named Dr. Henry Honer used modern astronomical charts and computers to confirm the work of Sir Robert Anderson. Both Anderson and Honer were able to show the precision with which God predicted and fulfilled the presentation of Jesus the Messiah. Now whether or not that, that, those books are precise isn't really important to me today and it's not important to you. But what I'm telling you is this. When God's people are devout, they love God, they serve God, they fast, they confess their sin, they pray to God, He gives them assurance about what's going to happen in the future. Even if they don't have all of the details, the big stuff gets filled in. And we know that Jesus is the King. He always has been. He always will be. It doesn't matter who rises up in leadership or who falls or what happens to the economy. Jesus is the King. That ought to be a comfort to you today. That brings us to Matthew chapter 21, the fulfillment of this prophecy, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And we cover the first 11 verses today. So let's read the Word of God together as a church. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went. And they did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and sent, set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the ground. And others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out. And they said, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, 
the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Heavenly Father, our hearts are happy today, full and thankful to see George, that you reached, after all these years, late in his life, reached in and into his life and saved him. And, and Lord, and that you sent him to us. And Lord, we're grateful. That, that makes us joyful and happy. And to sing the songs, and then to be able to give, to know that you provided for us, and that you love us, you take care of us. And now to quiet our hearts and to look at a section of your word, one that's so rich and full of significance, help your people today, help us as we look at your word, that you administer to our souls in a deep way, that we would be loyal subjects of the king of the universe. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, this is Matthew's story, and kind of in three chunks, I'll describe it to you as we kind of go back through in three different sections there's the preparation section in verses 1 through 5. Jesus is actually preparing a demonstration. And you see that in verses 1 through 5. He gives some detail. There's a fulfilled prophecy there. That's the first section. The second section is the entrance of the king. This is what we call the triumphal entry. The actual part there that's recorded in Matthew uh, verses uh, 21, verses 6 through 9. The story of the triumphal entry is in all four of the Gospels. It's that important. And you can find details in, in other of the Gospels, but the entrance into the city is in verses 6 through 9. And then you have the question in verses 10 and 11. This little section ends with a question, who is this? And so we're going to look at this in these, and then we're going we're to look at this in these three chunks, if you will. The preparation, verses 1 through 5. The entrance, verses 6 through 9. And the question, verses 9 and 10. And then I want to bring this to a point of application uh, for our souls this morning. I hope you're helped in this. Now again, this is a really important story. Bethphage must have been a hamlet close to Bethany. You know Bethany was on the backside of the Mount of Olives. This would be the place where Jesus probably went and slept at night during the last week of his life. Most nights, we believe that sometimes Jesus camped out on the backside of the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem. During Passover, the city would have been jammed with, with tens of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Some people suggest even more, maybe even millions of people. This was the time of Passover. We know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived together in Bethany. We know from other accounts that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and it has an effect on this triumphal entry. And Bethphage, House of Figs, was a place not far away from there, over against it. This is where they went to get the colt. Now this is Jesus, like, actually, intentionally orchestrating a demonstration. It's the only time he ever does it. But he actually orchestrates a demonstration. He actually plans this out. He plots this out. He knows where to get the donkey. He knows the secret password to get the donkey. He knows the kinds of things that people are going to do. And he knows the kinds of things, the symbols that they're going to use. And he knows what that's going to do, that it's going to stir up opposition against him. He's doing it on purpose. He's no fool. The people don't fully understand what they're doing, but he understands. And he is arranging this. Understand this. He is arranging this because nothing ever surprises God. Nothing good, bad, or ugly ever surprises God. Nothing good, bad, or ugly in your life is ever outside of God's sovereign control. Everything that happens to you has to pass through the fingers of His sovereignty. You say, no, Pastor, this is divorce we're talking about. This is cancer we're talking about. This is unemployment. Listen, nothing, nothing in the world can get to you till it passes through the fingers of the sovereign God of the universe. He plans everything. And Jesus planned, He orchestrated this triumphal entry in order to stir up hatred against 
forced himself to make some symbolic statements, and for some other reasons, Jesus planned this demonstration and orchestrated it. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he enters Jerusalem now just before Passover on the specific day in which was known as the Lamb Selection Day. He presents himself in the same gate where the lambs go through. He presents himself as the Lamb of God. And it's significant that he doesn't ride a horse. You would think the king of the universe would ride a horse, a great steed, a war horse, but he didn't. He rode a donkey. Now why? Why a donkey? What's the significance of that? My baby donkey, if you will. Well, three things. It signified that he came in peace. A ruler that comes on a donkey is a ruler coming lowly, meek, and in peace. He's coming in peace to bless. Not at war. Not at war. Not now. Later, but not now. He comes on a donkey because he's coming in peace. Meek and lowly. They don't get it, but he understands it. The second reason he comes on a donkey is because it's significant. David, Solomon, they rode donkeys. He's coming. He's he's the king in the line of David. And, uh, and then the third reason is specifically given here. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And people who are uh, aware of the Bible, the Old Testament, would have known when he rides on, on, uh, in on a baby donkey, he's fulfilling uh, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, a direct fulfillment of a messianic prophecy. He prepared all of that. And so it says in the, in the Scriptures, that he did these things. Go to the village opposite you. Verse 2. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied. A colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall, says anything to you, you say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This is unusual behavior, right? If you come to my house and you say, I'm taking your red Jeep. I'm like, uh, what do you mean you're taking my red Jeep? And then you say, the Lord wants me to have it. I'm going to give you trouble over that, right? I'm just going to give you all kinds of trouble. I'm going to say, I talked to the Lord earlier today. He didn't tell me anything about it. You can't have my red Jeep. Right? This is miraculous. He, he has the right of the king to conscript what's his, and nobody gives him any trouble. Say, the Lord needed it. This is remarkable, okay? And then you have this beautiful passage. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Do you lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey? He puts two passages of Scripture, one from Isaiah and one from Zechariah 9, 9 together. He leaves certain things out that aren't appropriate yet. They'll be appropriate later. He puts certain things in that are only appropriate now. It's a very precise thing here. And so the disciples, they go and do what Jesus commanded them, which is really always a great idea. You say, well, I don't understand what he's doing. That's all right, just go. I understand where he's sending me. Just do what he says. He says it. Just get in the habit of doing it. If he tells you to do something, then something good's going to happen. So you, you just obey him. Now notice the entrance in verses 6 through 9. In the entrance, Jesus is presenting himself again as a humble king. He's intentionally putting into motion a reaction that's going to lead to his death. Now, now this is interesting because in the Passover, the Passover is a commemoration for Israel of what? Freedom from slavery in Egypt. This is a holiday where they celebrate freedom. Right? Now there's a big crowd, a huge crowd. Actually, Jesus is creating a demonstration. And the people do a couple of things that are very symbolic. It's important that you understand the symbolism of two things, that they're waving palm branches is powerfully symbolic, not for us now, but then it was, and that they're shouting Hosanna is like electric shock. How do you feel when people burn the American flag? Yeah. It stirs up great 
frustration at least in you. Anger. And this is a symbolic thing. Think of somewhere in the world if someone wants to disdain the United States of America, they will take the American flag and they will burn it. And we all know what that means. They're showing disdain. It's symbolic. When people took up palm branches, it was, it, it, it would, their, the, mind, the popular mind would reckon back, reckon back to the time of the Maccabean period when there was a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek ruler. And the people would wave the palm branches. This is in their kind of collective societal memory. And so when people are waving palm branches, it's a sign of kind of international zealotry fervor. It's, it's as a freedom rally, and we're waving the palm branches, and we're shouting something that means, save us now. Save us now. They borrow the language from Psalm 118. It's the language that God's people use at the coronation of a king. But they're using this language and they're saying, and they're waving their palm branches in the face of the Roman oppression, and they're saying, this is the guy who's going to deliver us from Rome. Save us now. This was a dangerous thing. People died for less. People were crucified for less. They were being, this was risky business. And so along the road that day, they've got themselves whipped into a triumphal fervor, thinking that just maybe this is the one who's finally going to re- release them from Rome's oppression. During the time of the Passover, the Romans would have many extra troops on guard, because this is the time when people would claim to be Messiah. This is the time when they would leave, the Jews would leave the doors of the temple open so as not to uh, hinder the approach of the Messiah. This was, a, this was a charged atmosphere that Jesus intentionally walked into and created it, and He does that still today. I'm the King. Will you follow me or will you not follow me? He creates a demonstration still, and He demands loyalty still, and He controls circumstances still, and He's the King of the universe so this is what's happening, you understand, in this entrance to the city. The people crying out, Hosanna, was a political statement as much as it was a spiritual proclamation. And they're waving a nationalist symbol, the palm branch. And the king comes, but he comes not on a war horse. He comes in peace on a donkey. The people are confused about the nature of what it means to be Messiah. They understand that he's making messianic claims, but they, because of their own prejudice, they don't see that he's coming humbly to die first. And there's such a lesson for us in that because we kind of have a Jesus of our own making, a king of our own, you know, he's on on retainer for us. And 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 we have our agenda and, and we have the things that we want and the things that we think are right. And then we want to put God on our side and say, God is on my side, you see. This is what I believe and it's good and He's on my side and He's going to help me get what I want. But that's not how He works. We are as confused as they are often. He has an agenda. He has a plan. He's sovereign. He knows what He's doing. You don't know what He's doing. You know His character. You don't know all that He's doing and when He's doing it or how He's doing it. You can know, that, you can know His character. I recently had a talk with a young person that was trying to make decisions, uh, very important decisions about their life, really struggling through some very important decisions, and they were confused. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what decisions to make. And over a period of days, we had a, a number of phone calls, exchanged phone calls about this confusion, and it came to my heart to say to this person, you, you, know, you don't know your future, and you don't know these details, but I know there is one who does know all of that. And that one, the only one who knows your future and everything that you can trust is God. And He's the one you want to talk to. 
So your heart might be broken. You might be in devastating circumstances. It may make no sense to you, but you know there is one who does know. I'm going to risk something right now, and I'm going to quote an old chorus. I'm sorry. If you're young and hip, you won't like this. But when I was a little boy, we had this chorus we used to sing in church. I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand. You you got old-timers remember this? Or timers like me? Me timers? Yeah. I know who holds the future, and I know he holds my hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow, with the problems great and small, I'll trust the God of miracles and give to him my all. Now, there's probably cooler, hipper songs than that now, but... When I was a little boy, I remember just singing and understanding embedded in my little heart as a little boy, God is sovereign and God is good. And even if I can't understand him, I can trust him. Even if he's not making sense to me, he makes sense. And so I go for a walk and I just tell him all my troubles. And I turn my life over to Him. And I trust Him to do what only He can do. And I know He's the King, so He's got... And He's a benevolent, sweet, loving, peaceful King. And he's so merciful, he's, he's opened his arms in mercy to the world. And that brings us to that question. In verses 10 and 11, this demonstration moved the whole city to ask, who is this? Now hang on, because the answer that's given here is an incomplete answer. The multitudes answer and say, this is Jesus, a prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that just added fuel to the fire, right? You've got a nationalist movement of people from Galilee. This is not good. Oh, that's that prophet from Galilee causing trouble. Those funny-talking Nazarene-type people up there, people from Nazareth. And he was all of that. He was a prophet. He was from Galilee. He's from Nazareth of Galilee. Yes, he was. But, oh, is he more than that. And, oh, is he more than that. These people have no idea that there is no king greater than King Jesus. They have no idea that he's going to come meekly and humbly riding on a, on a donkey, but he's going to die, but then he's going to be buried, but then he's going to rise again, and then he's going to ascend to heaven, and millions, multitudes will, will pray to him. He alone will, will save them. This, this is the, there, there's nothing in the cosmos like it. Never has been, never will be. He's the king of kings. And so a very key thing has happened. You need to remember, because of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, here's what's happening on the road. You've got three crowds, three groups with Jesus that day. You've got a kind of a group from Galilee that's more or less traveling with him up to Passover, and they, and they have seen what he's done in Galilee, and so they're kind of in his fan base, if you will. And some of them would be true believers, and some of them would be, be enthusiasts, but this is a group that comes with him. And they're the ones that are probably shouting the loudest, Hosanna, Hosanna, our own boy, look at him right here, Hosanna. And then there's another group, and this group is coming to meet them. Maybe two groups. The curious are coming from Jerusalem to meet them because they've heard about the resurrection of Lazarus, and they want to know what is going on. And then there are the religious establishment guys, most of whom don't accept him. They've rejected him out of jealousy, demonic religious spite. They're going to kill him. It's often, you know how we say, we often say, what a fickle crowd. One day they say, Hosanna, and a few days later they say, crucify him. But scholars of the Bible who study it carefully say those might not be the same groups. Those might not be the same groups at all. Because there is a group in decided opposition against him, and there always is. There's a group that understands who he is and they're loyal to him. And this is a very small group initially there. Then there's a group that's loyal to him, but they don't have a full understanding. That's most of us most of the time. And then there's another group that they may or may not understand, but they are in opposition against him. They are going to reject him. And these three groups come together... On the, in the triumphal entry. Jesus is going to do some 
additional symbolic things that are rich with interesting symbolism that we'll get to in the weeks to come. But in this passage, he puts it before us. So who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? And what do you believe about him? There's going to be a Jesus movement. There's going to be a Jesus movement that spreads all around the world. After Jesus is crucified and buried, he rises again, and he ascends back to heaven, then there is this kind of like group of, of, of disciples who at this point are sort of confused that coalesce into a mighty, mighty force for God. And there is this movement. It's more than just an organization. It's more than just somebody putting together a good idea. It is a spirit-led movement that sweeps the world in little tiny Jesus groups all over the world Little tiny clusters of Jesus groups where people come to know them and they repent of it and they're from different nations and then they spread. They're kind of missionary in their nature. They, they tend to just spread. It's kind of like a good virus, if you will. This was not, this was not because of the force of organization. This was a movement that was fed by the Spirit of God. And when you think about it, I think, if God, if you did that in a movement, and you do every once in a while, God will do this in time and space. He will, he will like, plant a movement, and it will just go. And there will be a sweeping, sometimes we call it revival. And there are times throughout the history of our nation, you can read about them, and other nations, when God just embeds himself in a community, the people get very serious about God, suddenly there's a movement of people that are making disciples, a movement of Jesus groups. And, and a lot of times they're informal. And all, often we like to take the good of that, put it together into formal things, and that's fine. But the movement is, is informal. And when I read about this, I've been doing a lot of plotting, and I've been doing a lot of thinking, and I've been doing a lot of praying, and I've been having lots of conversations about what we could do to create an environment where a movement could spring out of our church like that and sweep all around here, where there would be little Jesus groups all over. This is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. Little Jesus groups, people who are praying, people who are thinking about who else could we touch, who else could we bless, who could we reach. Little Jesus groups that are studying the Bible and saying, what is Jesus' mission? I'm on the mission of Jesus. What if we had a movement of groups like that that came out of this church and they begin to spread their fingers all throughout this area and we found other guys like George Martin who are just waiting for somebody to come and love them and give them the gospel. Wouldn't that be exciting? So I've been spending a lot of time imagining that. I've been spending a lot of time thinking, what kinds of things would we have to do in order to create a movement like that? And I'm very excited about it. But it occurs to me as I studied this passage, what was it that fueled this first century movement? It was the power of the Holy Spirit in people who people after the resurrection saw, they put all the pieces together and they saw who Jesus really was. Just a cosmic, amazing cosmic power of who Jesus is, the only God, the King of the universe. When they saw that, and they were convinced He's the only God, that fueled this movement, and it will fuel the movement again today, you see. When we get our questions answered by Jesus, His character and who He is, that's an amazing thing. Now, listen carefully. We need a fresh look at this King. You, 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 your spiritual life may be flat. Maybe you've kind of been fooling around with sin, and your life isn't what it ought to be. Your, your, your talk isn't Christian. Your, 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 your moral life isn't, isn't right. You know it. They're just little compromises in your life that just, you know they're not right. And you, you've know, you know better. You've been taught. You don't need more teaching. You need something miraculous to happen to you. 
I want to suggest to you it's maybe because you really didn't get the whole picture. There's a fascinating passage in John, and it's in chapter 12 and verse 16, and it's, in the, it's embedded in the section on the triumphal entry in John. And listen to what it says. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and they had done these things to him. Do you see what happened? This is awesome. Jesus is letting things happen that he knows people don't understand. Get it? Jesus is arranging things he knows his disciples aren't going to understand. His disciples don't understand them. Because he's embedding them in their hearts. Because there's going to come a time after the resurrection, they're going to go, Oh, 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 I see it now. I get it. Oh, I get it now. And then the movement goes. Spirit fills these people and the movement goes. And they've got to tell other people. And other people get saved. It's just like, it's like um, word of mouth. Just spreading by word of mouth. Enthusiastic, spirit-filled, people of conviction, willing to die. That's what happens. It's interesting, you know, when I, when I see this here, I think, this is sort of a sad picture. Myself, when I look at it, I think, that's sad. Here's Jesus, the king of the universe, he's on a donkey? And a little, kind of a scrabbly little affair, and he's going along, you know, and people don't even really get what they're doing, and they're shouting. It's kind of, it seems kind of sad. And in, in Luke, if you read, Luke is a very rich passage about, about this, you, you read that the people are shouting, and the little children are crying out, and it seems really good, but what's Jesus doing, Remember? He's crying. Jesus is crying. He's weeping. I think when he comes, I think when his donkey comes around the mountain and he sees Jerusalem and he realizes what's about to happen, it's nothing like what the people think is about to happen. Because within their lifetime, Jerusalem is going to fall in a horrible kind of a fall and millions of people are going to be slaughtered and there's just going to be this terrible bloodbath. They're confused. They don't understand what they're going to go through and they, and they miss their day of visitation and it makes them weep. He, they don't get it. But there are a few who do get it. There are a few who understand. And, and later on there will be more who understand after the resurrection. And so it is a sad picture. But you have to understand, I, I want to encourage you today by helping you to see this isn't the only coronation that Jesus is ever going to have. Listen to this. This is from Revelation chapter 5. And verse 8, And now when he had taken a scroll, this is a scene in heaven, when he had taken a scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Whew, that's amazing. From every tribe and tongue and people. In, that's a go-get-em missionary movement, people. That's what it is. You are not missionary. You are not Christian. If you are Christian, you are missionary. To be a follower of Jesus means every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made us kings and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times, 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You should be a pastor and get to read that from the pulpit. That is all kind of fun right there. You love him? Is that bigger than the election? That's the amen part. You miss it again. That's bigger than the election. That's bigger than football. 
That's bigger than employment. It's bigger than new clothes, new shoes, new purses, and more makeup. It's bigger than anything you know. Jesus, the King. And He's going to come on a horse someday. Listen to this in Revelation chapter 19. And now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. Can you hear it? Crown him with many crowns. Hmm? And he had a name written no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name was called the Word of God. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he humble, and he himself will rule with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords this is not the only coronation jesus will have he has one coming now whose side are you going to be on then you see don't don't be thrown off don't be discouraged don't be confused when you're confused like daniel and you're really not sure get on your face and pray and study the bible and realize there will come a day when everything that's messed up is going to be made right because jesus is going to be the king and he will reign on this earth and a lot of stuff in your life right now that doesn't make sense now will make sense then Sometimes what we think is a great triumph is really the great tragedy. Sometimes what we think is really a tragedy is really a triumph, that God is doing something wonderful. I think back of, about a man named Mr. Clutter. Wayne and Helen Clutter were farmers in a church I used to pastor in Ohio. They had a little sheep farm. Well, like any young couple, when they were young, they, they were excited when they found out they were going to have a baby. And so, you know, they probably painted the nursery for the baby. And they probably planned out what was his name going to be or what was her name going to be because back then you couldn't figure out ahead of time. And, 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 they, and they, I imagine that Wayne, he's a farmer, I imagine he imagined having a boy, maybe a boy that would farm with him. And a boy was born. And it was a happy day until they found out there was something wrong with the boy. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't have normal intelligence. He would be physically strong. He would have the ability to connect with people emotionally. But he would not have the same intelligence, normal intelligence. He would never really be able to live alone on his own. He would never marry and have a family. He would never leave the farm. And the day that Larry was born... I imagine that must have been a burden for the parents to think, what's going to happen now? But if they could have looked forward into the future like I could see when I came to be their pastor and they were old people and I would call on them on their farm. Larry was, an, was a neat guy, wasn't he, Lois? He was a lot of fun. He was a Buckeye and he would spar with Lois about Michigan. They would go at it all the time. If Michigan won, which of course was rare, then she would, she would pick on... Larry, and if Ohio State, actually that was during John Cooper, so Michigan always won. But, so they would have that little thing going on. He was, a, he, was a, he was a fun guy. I visited their farm, and, you know, sometimes they couldn't get out of the chair. They were so old. And their health was going down, and sometimes they just, they just couldn't do much of anything. You know, they would say, hey, Larry, can you, can you feed the cows? Can you get the gate? After I left that church, one day somebody called me and said, that Helen and Wayne Clutter had died. 
they got to live on their farm their entire life. And they, they didn't live there alone. They had a strong, able-bodied, great heart of a son named Larry that lived with them all those years. And because of that, their life was happy and they were able to stay on the farm like a lot of farm people like to do. So when Larry was born and he wasn't as smart as other people, was that a tragedy or was it a triumph? It's not our job to figure that out. It's the king's job to figure that out. And right now you may be handed something really hard, a divorce or an employment or a wayward child or sickness and your heart is broken and you don't understand and you're tempted to think, is God really in control? He is. You're tempted to think this is a great tragedy. Maybe not. Maybe it's a great triumph. And it isn't over yet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for gathering your people today in your house. And I ask that you would bless your people this afternoon on the Lord's Day, that this day would be a day of sweet and holy contemplation for your people. I pray your blessing on those that gather in the prayer meeting along the road this afternoon. And very humbly just say, we, we, we believe God, we believe the Bible, and we love babies, we love children. And we stand with other Christian people in our area just to say, we're grieved, we're sad that little ones are treated with such contempt in our, in our nation. I pray, Lord, that for George, that he would grow in the Lord. Thank you for bringing him in late in life and give, paying him the same as you paid us because it wasn't something we earned. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I pray, Lord, that we would, be, we would have the privilege of stirring the baptismal waters week after week after week after week that you would fill this house with repentant sinners who love you, that they would give you praise, honor, thanksgiving, and glory. I pray that you would create a movement that comes out of this church of little Jesus clusters that, that would meet all over the area and pray and study the Bible and plot good things for, for the kingdom's sake, that we would follow you on your mission and receive you as our king, and that you would bless your people as they're dismissed now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.